You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1. Going to be in verses 1 and 2 this morning. Beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, Lord, as we open your word together this morning, Lord, I beg you to come and do what none of us in this room is capable of doing. And that is, Father, that we ask you to speak words of life into our hearts. That you would take dead stones and turn them into living stones. Those, fathers, you would take those of us who have been worshiping self, worshiping possessions, worshiping accomplishments, worshiping thoughts throughout the week, transform us into worshipers of you who would come to you in spirit and in truth. Father, I pray that you would come and do a work of salvation and transformation in our hearts. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So, hey, I want to start you off with this question. Uh, it might be on the screen here in a few moments for you. I want you to think about the words that you use to describe yourself. I want you to write some of them down. Think about those for a minute. What words do you use to describe yourself? See, recently I woke up to a message on my phone from a friend who lives in Australia. And here's the words that he used to describe me. He referred to me this way. Warrior, son of the Most High God. Strange, isn't it? He called me legend. That's uh, <laughs> getting a little more weird, right? He called me Champion of champions. I'm like, what What is wrong with you? (laughs) What's going on? I admit that it made me feel more than a little uncomfortable. Um, I won't lie. Those words that he used to describe me, shocking to me, like, just, just made me uncomfortable, right? But isn't that the way that uh, it usually goes for any of us? Uh, when somebody speaks well of us anyways? Isn't there something kind of broken deep down inside of each of us? Like, if you think about the inner self-talk that goes on inside of you, the way that you talk about yourself, the way that you describe yourself, isn't there something somewhat broken deep down inside of there where, where instead of, if you listen to your inner self-talk, instead of 
building ourselves up, don't we all have a tendency to actually tear ourselves down more often than not? I think it's also interesting to think about this, and, and some of you heard me reference this quite a bit. We, we, and it's a play on words, but we, we, do, we, we spend more time listening to ourselves talk than preaching to ourselves. <clears throat> we listen to words, we listen to phrases. It's easier deep down inside to listen to myself say things like, man, I'm so stupid, right? Um, what a failure I am. I mean, deep down inside, and I know for some of us, that kind of deep inner soul and heart reflection may not even be a blip on your radar yet, right? You may not even recognize that that's taking place deep down in your soul as you tear yourself down day in and day out, but the I think it's a reality that that we do spend more time listening to negative words that don't come from our Father in heaven. We spend more time listening to those words rather than preaching the truth of the gospel and preaching things that our Father would say about us. (coughs) One of the things that I uh, love to do, you guys have... Most of you tracked with us for, for long enough, you, you know that I love to refer to my wife and my daughters as beautiful, loved, and treasured. It's, 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 a, <coughs> it's kind of taken on um, its own, I don't know, its own identity in our family where the girls speak to each other this way now too, which is really fun to see. <coughs> you find little notes um, around the house to each other, things on the mirror, so on and so forth. I love to refer to my wife and my daughters as beautiful, loved, and treasured. Why? Because I know that those words are the exact opposite of the words that our enemy uses to speak into their hearts on a regular basis. Same is true with my son. (coughs) I love to remind my son that he is bold and loved and treasured. Why? Because oftentimes my son, like many of us men in this room, we often believe that we're weak or that we're unlovable or that we're unwanted, right? <clears throat> so think about the words that you use to describe yourself. What, what comes to mind when you think about those words? <clears throat> Man, you'd think I'd have COVID or something up here coughing like this. When you think about the words that you use to describe yourself, what comes to mind? And think about this too. Think about the direct reflection. You think about a reflection in a mirror? The the words that you use to describe yourself, all they are is a direct reflection of what you not only believe about yourself, but what you believe about God. What you believe that your Father God in heaven says about you, believes about you, and thinks about you directly affects what you say about you. Direct reflection of your view of God. Think about it from this angle, okay? Think about that. Keep keep, keep with that same frame of thinking in terms of what you believe about yourself being a reflection of what you believe about God. And think about when you first started following Jesus, if you've had that, that experience. <coughs> Most of us begin following Jesus with this understanding that we are new creations in Christ. Amen? Amen. Okay? Most of us begin there. 
We can quote it sometimes as we grow. We can even do chapter and verse, which is like, oh, I'm even better now because now I can chapter and verse something. Yay, right? It's not bad. It doesn't get you any stars on your chart in heaven, right? Because only Jesus has got those stars, and he gave them to you. <coughs> Most of us begin following Jesus with this understanding that we are new creations in Christ Jesus, right? We've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, right? In the finished work of Christ at the cross. And, and all of that is according to the scriptures alone, right? For the glory of God alone, right? These are the five solas wrapped up into one statement that started the Reformation. We believe that from the get-go. Then somewhere, typically early in our journey, similar to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, <coughs> after hearing this word from God, after understanding all those realities, something changes, right? Something changes. We begin to believe that we are good believers if and if we do things well, right? <coughs> At the point that we are good believers, then, then everything's going to go well. Not only are we going to do things well, but things are going to go well, right? Uh, our marriages are going to get better. Um... Our finances are going to be a little bit better. Oftentimes we put that back on our own um, performance because as we grow into godly people, we become, we become more godly in the way we handle our finances. Agreed? Does that sound like truth? Right? <coughs> we think that all things are going to get better. Our friendships are going to blossom now. We're going to have a great group of friends that we never had before. Um, for some of us, we even start to think that sickness and disease isn't going to affect us because we've now begun to follow Jesus. Everything's going to be like sunshine and rainbows, or you could say rainbows and unicorns, even though unicorns don't exist. We could argue about that another time, too. <laughs> it kind of starts there, a little bit of a utopian feeling, right? Really excited in that beginning stage, so to speak, following the Lord. And it doesn't take long. I don't think it takes very long for us to realize that living as broken people in a broken world, man, it doesn't get any easier when you start following Jesus. It actually... It actually gets harder, right? And here's the thing. There's a point. I'm pretty sure that we've all had this experience, maybe still have this experience, or, or maybe you're having this experience and you don't even recognize that you've been having it. Here's the experience. Things get hard. You begin to suffer. And you begin to question God's goodness. You begin to question God's faithfulness. You begin to question God's kindness. Now, you don't stand in front of the mirror and go, God, I, just, I don't even know if I believe that you're good today. Like for some of us, we may not even go to that level of, of exploration in terms of, of that. But, but we do it in different ways, don't we? Um, we? We confess our unbelief in God in various different ways. What are some of those ways? Well, it's easy to kind of cap this off with just saying all sin that you and I do is a direct um, statement of unbelief in God. God, you're not good enough for me, therefore I chase pornography, right? Um, God, you don't love me enough, um, therefore I'm going to chase possessions. Um, God, you, you're not, you're not going to sustain me, therefore I'm going to chase um, status. So whatever it is, we wind up chasing things based upon our unbelief and our belief. Um, and, then, and then it becomes hard because you've got to dissect all of that and ask the Holy Spirit to examine you, right? 
That's what happens when we begin to question the goodness, the faithfulness, the kindness, the, the sovereign love of our Heavenly Father. And here's the thing. When we mistrust our Heavenly Father, because He hasn't fixed everything in our lives at this point, then, and at that point, we begin to listen to the voice of our enemy. Right? Like Adam and Eve, something looks much better than what God has said, and I, and I chase that thing. Looks pleasing to the eyes, right? Feels pleasing to the senses. Might even taste good. So we chase that thing down. This story of the Garden of Eden has made its way all throughout Scripture, right? And especially into our identity. We begin to view ourselves as God does not view us. We begin to listen to this voice of our enemy then in our head who really speaks to us through the language of shame, guilt, and condemnation. Now, <clears throat> the language of shame, guilt, and condemnation, you hear those words, right? And I think you, you and I would immediately say bad language. Anybody agree? Like, oh, shame, guilt, I don't want to talk to myself that way. I don't want to relate to that kind of language. But here's the thing. When, when our enemy, the devil, relates to us in that kind of language, he actually dresses it up. And he makes it look really good. And he makes it taste really good. And in fact, if he can kind of get you to like justify yourself a little bit, like, well, you know, I, my sin wasn't as bad as that person over there, or, or, or I'm not as bad as I used to be. Where's the shame and the guilt and the condemnation in that? Here's the shame and the guilt and the condemnation in that. You're still bad. <laughs> You're still not good enough. What does that make you do? Well, you try to medicate yourself then somehow. Right? Again, justifying. And it's a vicious cycle. And the more that you get in tune with this kind of language that happens in people's lives, the more you can begin to kind of see it instantaneously in people's lives. And you go, that's shame language. That's guilt language. That's condemnation language. That's justifying language. That's self-justifying. That's that there, that's, that's hiding in your works. You begin to see that cycle in people's lives. And the core of all this the core of all this is what you believe about God that translates into what you believe about yourself, which then translates into what you believe about other people. Think about the language you use to describe other people, the people that get on your nerves. Those losers, they're so stupid. How could they be so jacked up? And you know what you're doing? You're using language to describe somebody that only the enemy uses to describe somebody. This is why I ask when you... Think about the words that you use to describe yourself, what, what comes to mind. And my question for you this morning as we dive into this text and look at it, is will you be honest with yourself? And would you submit and surrender and allow the Holy Spirit to do a little bit of examination inside of you and a little work of transformation? Because you see, at the end of the day, what I'm actually getting at here, and I think what, what Peter's going to get at throughout this book, is an issue of identity. Who we believe we are based upon who we believe God is. That's the beauty of 1 Peter. Of 1 Peter, um, all throughout this, this letter, this book, what Peter is going to do, think about this imagery for a second. What Peter's going to do is he's going to line up the sights of his laser on his sniper rifle in, in light of our, our identities, it's going to hone in on our identity. It's gonna, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna, uh, hone in on the identity of the believer who says, I follow God. 
And the question is going to consistently be, if you, if you do, if you follow God, if you believe in Him, then, then what you say about yourself is a direct reflection of what you believe about God, and that's going to translate in how you live your life in this jacked-up world. It's going to translate into that every time. You want to see what's going on inside somebody's heart? Look at the way they live. And don't just pay attention to the fact that they're like, I'm a Christian, I can quote you some Bible verses. Great. Let's, let's dig into that. Why do you do that? Why? Why do you do that? Right? It gets down to the motivations. Really, really what Peter's going to get after in this, in this entire letter is going to get after this one massive truth. All of us are exiles. And what he wants is he wants for us to be able to live filled with hope in a hostile world, really. Not live in hostility to the hostile world. That's one of the things that absolutely detests me about the church in America today is we actually like to live in open hostility to the hostile world. And like, you think that would transform something? That's not a picture of Jesus dying on a cross. I didn't pick up arms. He picked up a cross. A thing that caused him to die to you could say to die to himself, but you know, Jesus, did Jesus need to die to himself? Probably should think about that. We need to, though. That's why we need to pick up those crosses. So, so let's look at this. Look at the identity of the author. Let's look at that first. Look at verse 1. <coughs> what does Peter say? What does he say about himself? Look at the words. When Peter says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, don't we just kind of read past that like, oh, great introduction, Peter. Let's get into the meat. Look at this for a minute. Like, what, what Peter's not doing is he's not just throwing around titles. Okay? He's not saying, yo, my name's Joe, I'm the pastor here, or a pastor here. No, not just throwing around titles. When, when, when Peter uh, says, Peter, Apostle of Jesus Christ. Think about the nuance of what he's saying, man. He's speaking to the churches from his own identity as someone who has been called to follow Jesus, and not only called to follow Jesus, but then sent by Jesus with a message, the message of the gospel. As simply stated, when you look at what uh, Peter says about himself, his own identity, he's reminding his hearers of who he believes he is. And who he believes he really is is undeniably rooted in his calling and commissioning as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Think about Peter. What do you know about Peter? Think about Peter. I am reminded that Peter, Peter is the one who denied Jesus Three times on the night of our Savior's death. You think your sin yesterday looked bad? That day looked bad. And in a sense, every time we sin, we, we, we look no different than Peter on that night of Jesus' death when he denied Jesus three times. Because every time we sin, it's a denial that Jesus is enough for us, right? <laughs> Screw you, Jesus. I don't know you. I don't know who that guy is. That's, I mean, he cursed he cursed as he walked away from Jesus, right? Why don't you think of this other picture that I have of, of Peter? How many of you read the Gospel of Mark? Show of hands. How many of you are now going to go read the Gospel of Mark when you leave here? Show of hands. Because now you feel bad because everybody else read it. Uh -uh. <laughs> you see what I'm doing there? 
don't don't listen to shame, guilt, and condemnation. I, I hope that you would be invited and excited to go read the Gospel of Mark when you leave here because of what you might just hear. How many of you know who, who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Most people would be like, well, well, Mark. True? Kind of. Here's what I envision. I envision Mark he's sitting at the table and he's writing, right? He's writing all these things in the Gospel. And you know who's over his shoulder? You know who the ghostwriter was? Peter. It's Peter. Now, when you read the Gospel of Mark and you, and you, and you, and you think of Mark sitting there and he's, he's writing, and I, I can just see him like, freaking quill, it's out of ink. I need to go so hold that thought, Peter. He gets some another pen, whatever, you know, and then and Peter's like, Man, I think you should write this. I think you should write this. I think the people need to hear this. Oh, it would be really important to share this story of when Jesus did this. Um, oh, oh, you can't leave this out. You can't leave out the story of when I betrayed Jesus that night, when I denied him three times. You have to write that story. Well, why would Peter do that? Right? So now Peter's not relating to us in his identity as the person who denied Christ three times. How, how's he relating to us right now in this letter? He's relating to us in his, you could say, redeemed state of mind, right? Apostle, sent by Jesus, commissioned, chosen by God. That's how he's relating out of that transformed identity. You might remember that same night, there was somebody else who betrayed Jesus, right? What was his name? Anybody know what his name was? Judas. Judas Iscariot. I, I love this. This is interesting. You, you, know that, you know that on the night before Jesus' death, you, you realize that Judas, who was going to betray Jesus as well, you know that he ate food that night too, right? You know that Jesus washed his feet too, right? Jesus knew that that man was going to be the reason that he died, Right? And yet, he didn't act like many of us want to act. He wasn't combative with Judas. He spoke truth, but he washed his feet. Can I just ask you, like, think about the impact of that as you think about the identity of the God you claim to serve and the identity that you believe you have based upon the God you claim to serve and what that should translate into in the world that we live in as exiles in a hostile world. When was the last time you washed the feet of the person on the other side of the political aisle from you? Or the other side of the theological aisle from you? Literally got down in the grimy dirt and washed their feet. And then went and died on a cross for them because that's what Jesus did. Undeniable in the scriptures, this is what we see, right? Judas betrayed Jesus. And what did he do? Killed himself, right? Hunt himself because of the shame and the guilt and the condemnation that he listened to. Two men in this story, Peter and Judas, right? Two very similar paths, both of them leading to two very different outcomes, right? It's an identity issue. And it all, it all, it all floats around the identity that, uh, of God that you believe in that then informs your own identity, the words that you say about yourself that then informs the way that you live in this hostile world. You think about Peter after the resurrection, right? What do you think Jesus' um, 
uh, interaction with Peter is, okay, you put yourself in a parent's shoes. Your kid just screwed up bad, right? Most of us in this room could be probably be pretty honest about the numerous times we've had very bad interactions with our kids and jacked it all up, right? Look at Jesus like a parent in this situation. You know that Peter just denied you three times. What is your interaction with it going to be? Peter, let's sit down and have a talk, man. I think you need to go study a couple books, okay? In fact, Peter, you probably need to wait maybe a year before you go out and start preaching the gospel. That would probably be good, right? I mean, you just denied me three times while I'm dying on the cross in front of you. I think some good old-fashioned discipline is probably in order for you, Peter. I think you need to think about your failures for a little while so that you can actually think about how good I want you to be. You need to become a better Christian, Peter, before you start following what I've asked you to do, right? It's not really the way the conversation went, though. It's interesting because within 50 days of the resurrection, what's Peter doing? Preaching a message in the streets. Doesn't that, like, it's pretty wild, right? I don't know if I'd want to put a... I don't know if I'd want to put Pastor Peter on the wall. It's not the way I relate to myself oftentimes, right? Like Peter jacked it up like that, yeah. Here's the way Jesus relates to Peter in that situation. Though. He comes to him and here's what he says. Hey, hey, Peter, do you love me like a friend? Peter's like, well, yeah. Of course I do, Jesus. Yeah, you know I do. It's okay. Hey, Peter, make sure you feed my sheep like a good friend of Jesus would do. Right? And walk along a little further. And again, here's what Jesus didn't do. He didn't, he didn't hand Peter this big book and this big three-point lecture. In relationship, walking alongside the beach, I think. Man, are you my friend? Do you love me like a friend? Yeah, well, feed, feed my sheep like a good friend of Jesus would. Okay. A bit later... Hey, Peter. Yeah? Hey, do you love me like a brother? Like, do we, do we have that kind of a, a friendship? And are we, are we like brothers? Do you love me like a brother would, would, would love his brother? Well, of course, Jesus. Of course. Of course, of course I love you like a brother. Yeah, you know. You know that. And uh, Jesus' response is, okay. Well, feed my sheep, Peter, like a good brother of Jesus would do. Do that, right? I can just, I'm just imagining Peter's thoughts, right? He's got to be remembering, man, I just just denied you three times less, less than four or five days ago. What happened to you four or five days ago? What happened in your life four or five days ago? What kind of sin did you commit four or five days ago? What conversation do you imagine that Jesus would have with you today? Could this be that conversation? It's really hard to hear because it's not black and white. It's not legalistic. It's not go do, do, do. Right? Third time, Jesus asks Peter and he says, Hey, Peter, um, do you love me enough to give your life for me? And I think Peter is probably rocked at that point in the conversation. And Jesus says, Hey, when you feed my sheep... Feed my sheep like somebody who's willing to lose his life for it. Right? That's the restoration period that Peter had gone through. The identity of the Apostle Peter, the one who wrote this book, that's how he sees himself 
because of his direct encounter with his own Savior after the deepest, darkest sin he could have possibly fallen into. That's the identity of the man who writes this letter. The Apostle Peter knew. He knew that any words of guilt, shame, or condemnation, those are not words from the Savior. And so Peter here identifies himself as his Savior saw him. He identifies himself as an apostle, one who has been called and chosen and then sent by the one who redeemed him from his sin. And so I want to ask you again, when you describe yourself, what words do you use? Look at the identity of the recipients of this letter for a minute, probably more than a minute, but but, but look at the identity of the recipients of this letter. See, when, when, when Peter, in, in, in verse 1, refers to his listeners as those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, what's their identity? Well, you could be like, well, they live in these cities, these regions. True. I don't know if that's very transforming. It does let you know where they're at. Peter uses three identifying words. Check them out. First one is the word elect. It means chosen. You know what elect is, right? Um, you all know what it means to go to the polls and choose your political candidate. Uh, you know what it's like to go to you know, the picture of adoption, you know what it's like to walk into an adoption agency and say, I choose that kid, right? There's all sorts of ways we can get out of this, get, get, get after this idea of elect to choose. Second word is the word exiles. What does exiles mean? Exiles means outsiders. And then the last word that he uses to uh, identify his listeners is the word dispersion. What, what comes to mind? Somebody tell me, what comes to mind when you think of the word dispersion? Scattered. Yes, you're right, scattered. Really? Like it? Those three words? Those are three words that Peter uses to describe the identity of his, of his listeners? Like, those three words don't actually feel like they're very compatible if you think about it, right? It's kind of hard making them fit together. They don't, and even if you think about the way the words feel, right? Because words always carry feelings to them, don't they? So if you think about the way these words feel, these three words don't feel like they fit together in the same sentence, and yet the Apostle Peter uses all three together to describe the identity of a believer in Christ. Again, go back to the picture of adopting a child, right? When you think about adopting a child, maybe from a third world country or anywhere else, and once the adoption is complete, you bring that baby home, and then you start to refer to them as the child that you chose who is, who is an outsider. You're an outsider, baby. You're so good. Right? Isn't that weird? I chose you. You're an outsider, and you're scattered. What is going on? Can you feel, can you feel the, the tension in the words? tension in those words. Think about those three words from a different perspective. I'm going to try not just feeling the way they fit together. I want you to continue to feel, but I want you to feel it more personally, right? Um, 
Do you ever notice the brokenness and the sin in your life then you begin to wonder, like in all of your, your imperfections and your failures, why would God choose me? Why would God want anything to do with me after I failed for the umpteenth, gazillionth, trillionth time at this? Anybody here have that track record of failure in your life? You know, where you go, man, I failed again. I just judged that person. I just neglected my wife. I just yelled at my kid. I just looked on that person with lust. I was just angry with that person for no reason, right? I failed to love this other person. And you fail over and over and over again, and you just go, why would, why would God even love me? Let me ask you this question too. When do you feel the most alone? Some of you might say, actually, right now in this church, I feel the most alone. Some of you might say, in my marriage, I feel the most alone. Some of you might say, you know, I, at my work, I, I feel the most alone. I feel like I'm standing outside the party while everyone else is having a blast inside. When is that moment for you? All I'm trying to do is help you to allow the Holy Spirit, and I'm not Him, to allow the Holy Spirit to do a work of examination inside of you whereby transformation might happen. Oftentimes we want the transformation, but we don't want the examination. Oh, let me say that again. Oftentimes we want the transformation, but we don't want the examination. We want the doctor to tell us what is wrong with us, right? And what we can do to get healthy, but we don't want to go through the examination period in the room. Either A, we don't want to pay the price to go there. B, we don't believe he's that good of a doctor anyways. And we translate this kind of thinking onto our God, onto our preachers, onto the word that we read, onto the body of Christ. And we thumb up our nose and we walk by ourselves and we wonder, why doesn't my life change the way I really want it to? Because you keep pushing away the examination that you need to get you to the transformation. When do you feel the most alone? Like you're standing outside the party while everybody else is having a blast. Where do you feel the most relationally disconnected? Again, your friends, your marriage, your family, your church, your work. So now think about these realities. Chosen, outsider, scattered. Now they're starting to make a little bit more sense, aren't they? And how they actually fit together emotionally, spiritually, relationally. It seems like there's a, a ton of tension still. Um, I don't know what that was. Was that like the bells of Jesus? Like, it wasn't a trumpet. It sounded like a trumpet in my mind because I was like lost in thought and suddenly I'm back. Where was I? It's okay. It's not a big deal. I'm totally, because my brain is fried now, I need to figure out where I was at. I really, no, I really thought Jesus was coming back. It's really what I thought. I was like, what? Please tell me I said everything right so I, I don't get left behind because I, I know the left behind movies are wrong. Please prove that they're wrong. I hope so too. <laughs> okay, back on track. Bunny trail done. I want to get you all out here, right? <laughs> These words, chosen, and, and, and I don't know if the Left Behind movies are wrong or not, all right? So just please, just 
please still vote for me. <laughs> Show 2020. Stop. Words. Words. Chosen, outsiders, scattered. There's a lot of tension between those words, right? Um, that's the beauty of the book of 1 Peter, though, man. When you study this letter, you study the book of 1 Peter, here's what you're going to find. Hopefully this image will be helpful to you as well. There's this really beautiful tension um, and an overlaying as they go together. They don't look like they fit, but Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, actually makes these three words uh, fit together. And he fits them together into what I read in a commentary. It was described as a seamless I-beam. Anybody know what an I-beam is? Look right there on the ceiling. That's kind of like an I-beam. It supports a ceiling, right? There's I-beams and trusses in the floor that supports the floor you're, you're sitting on, standing on, so on and so forth. The Apostle Peter, all throughout this letter, he fits those three words together, and then he creates this seamless I-beam that acts like a floor joist to the book. Right? As you walk through that book, on the floor of that book, you can trust that inside of that, underneath of that, holding it up, is this seamless I-beam of these three words. Chosen, outsider, scattered. Do the study. Check it out for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. But when you look all throughout this book, you're going to find those themes, these kinds of words that mean those three things. Chosen, outsider, scattered. And the beauty of these three words is this. And they're meant to remind Peter's listeners, them, us, you, and I, meant to remind us of our identity in Christ Jesus. Because here's the reality. You and I, if you're in Christ, if you trusted in Jesus, if He saved you today, if you're walking with Him today, you can rest assured this. You have been chosen by a good and patient and kind Loving Father to be His possession. He walked into the pawn shop of your sin and He looked dead in the eye of Satan's sin in the grave, those who once owned you, and He said, not yours anymore, mine. And He picked you up and He walked out of that pawn shop and He said, you're mine. That's your identity, chosen in Christ. In Christ, you live in this world as an outsider. You don't belong here. So stop trying to make this your eternal home. You ought to be looking forward to full restoration in heaven. Here's the thing. You know what? Go ahead and go. Um, hold your signs. Proclaim all of your anger at what's going on in our world. You know what we ought to be doing? A friend of mine said this week. He's like, if we're believers and we believe that we're actually close to the end times. Why are we out in the streets getting mad about it? Why wouldn't we be out in the streets celebrating and worshiping Jesus is going to be coming back soon? Like, that was a moment I was like, holy crap, you're right. Like, why do I live in fear over what's going to happen in this stupid old world I live in? It's not my home. Right? I go celebrate Jesus. May he come back soon if that's true. Soon could be a thousand years because you know, days as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Jesus lives outside of the scope of time, anyways. Outsider in this world, that's your identity. 
See, when somebody gets that identity issue off, they start thinking this world is their home. What do you try to do? You set up a tabernacle right here. Let's just stay here. Let's, let's create this little utopia. We'll move out to the suburbs and everything's going to be good. The inner city's going to be back there. You got to worry about those crazy people. I can just go down there and serve like once a week and then get back home where it's safe. You see how identity, what I see about God and what I believe about him influences what I believe about myself and then influences the way that I actually live in this world. That's what we do. Like, like we're human, right? Thank God for His grace. This place isn't our home. Living in this world as outsiders who are looking forward to full restoration in heaven. Last one, in Christ, where we're scattered. And we're scattered across this world, holding on to what? Our hope of building something here? No, our hope of, uh, our hope of eternal union with Christ. Heaven is just an outflowing of the identity that you have as, as you are united to Jesus in His life, His death, his resurrection. The problem is, is that we don't believe, we really don't believe deep down inside that Jesus' life was enough. So we try to prove that we can live a life that was enough. We really don't believe that his death was enough, and so we consistently try to prove that we're better than we really are. We really don't believe that his resurrection was enough, and so we try to build our little heaven here. So when I fall into sin, I don't know about you, and you're not the same as me, but when I fall into sin, man, it's easy to forget that I've been chosen by a good and patient and kind father. Okay? When I, when I feel all alone as an outsider, it's easy to forget that God, God has given me his very own spirit. Right? I said this to a friend this, this last week, and it's actually, been a, it's actually been a statement that's just followed me around all week long. It was a moment where I was like, man, what do you have to be afraid of? You've got nothing to be afraid of, Right? Because you got the line of the tribe of Judah walking right next to you wherever you go if you trust in Jesus. That's powerful. Like, there's a lion right here. Did you, did you know that? Do you see him? I don't either. But he's walking next to you too, right? And I, I was jacked up over that for a while. And then I got this other thought as I was like just ruminating on it, thinking on it, spending time before the Lord, confessing sin, asking him to forgive, and just trying to reapply his identity over my life. And in that moment, it's like the Holy Spirit said, yeah, I'm walking right next to you in the line of the tribe of Judah, but you know what else? I'm also setting up a lion's den inside of your heart. And I was like, holy crap. You're setting up a lion's den inside my heart. Just think about that. If you're trusting in Jesus, that's what he's doing in you as well. See, when I feel alone as an outsider, it's easy to forget that God has given me his very own spirit. I may be a lonely outsider on this earth, but here's the thing. I look forward to heaven where every outsider becomes an internal insider. That's what I look forward to. When I feel scattered, when I feel torn to pieces, when I feel broken apart, what I need to remember, what you need to remember in those moments is that each of us are scattered sons and daughters of God who are awaiting future glory in eternity. Okay? So once again, what are the words that you use to describe yourself when you think about yourself? Last point, and we'll get out of here. What do you think about the identity of God? We've talked about the identity of the author. We've talked about the identity of the recipients. And I want you to think about the identity of God. Because I've been saying to you all along that your identity is a direct reflection of the identity you believe God is, which then translates into the way that you live in this world in relation to other people, and especially those who are your enemies. Right? Later on in the book of 1 Peter, he's actually going to jump into how do you live under and within a governmental structure that is wrong. 
going to get into that. So I think it's a deeply practical book for us to be working through in this day and age. Think about the identity of the God that Peter preaches. Peter tells his listeners that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? That, that he's been chosen, that we are outsiders, we are scattered. He says all of those identifying words in verse 2 are, look at the words, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to the sanctification of the Spirit. For obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood, and then at the tail end, I think he kind of offers this little prayer that grace and peace would be multiplied to you. I wish I could spend a whole other sermon just talking about the nuances of these three pieces. The foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, making us holy, making us look like Jesus, and the sprinkling and the salvation, the justification that happens when God proclaims salvation over you. I wish I could talk for a whole other sermon about the power of the multiplication of grace and peace in our lives and what that looks like, but we don't have time. So I would summarize it this way in this last point. The Peter's identity, his listeners' identities, they're all established. Your identity and my identity, if we are in Christ, they're all established by our all-knowing Father. It's nothing gets past him. Nothing that he doesn't know. Every piece of you he knows, down to the very last atom, and anything smaller than that. He knows. On top of that, our Father in Heaven is the one who actually purifies us through the work of the Holy Spirit, so that we might become conformed to the image of our Savior, whose blood has washed us white as snow. And I always remember this passage. I can't chapter and verse it because I'm not like the greatest Christian, but here's the thing. I love this where it says, though my sins, they be as scarlet, and though my heart is actually like a harlot, you've come and you've washed me white as snow. Isn't that really good news? How could anybody reject that good news and walk any other way? Why would you want any other identity than that? You know? Anything less than this is an anti-gospel. It's an anti-gospel of works that takes the attention away from the only work that is eternal in the shed blood and the broken body and the eternal promise of Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, what Peter is doing here is he's giving us a description. The work of the Father, the work of the Spirit, and the work of the Son, isn't he? It's a picture of the triune God. The triune God who sovereignly establishes the godly identity of any believer who has been chosen to live outside the norms of this world as they look forward to the hope of heaven. So I ask you one more time. When you think about the words you use to describe yourself what comes to mind. Would you uh, bow your heads and pray with me as our music team comes forward? Father, I'm going to ask that you would come in these uh, closing moments and root our, root our hearts in you. Remind us of these words that have been 
used in this text before us today. That we would be called by You. That we would be conformed by You. That we would be sent by You. Chosen by You. That we would be outsiders living in a world that's not our home. And that we would be scattered throughout the world with the message of hope. Help us, Father, to begin now to take on the identity of our good, gracious, and loving, and kind Father in Heaven who gave His Son. Help us to find our place at the foot of a bloody cross where You gave Your life for us. Help us to find our strength um, in the doorway of an empty tomb where You were victorious over Satan, sin, and the grave. Help us to find hope as exiles in a hostile world as we look forward to the place is our eternal home from a place that is not our own. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.